Good morning, everybody. Some words from the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God has chosen to possess all things at the end. He reflects the brightness of God's glory and is the exact likeness of God's own being, sustaining the universe with his powerful word. After achieving forgiveness for human sins, he sat down in heaven at the right side of God, the supreme power. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Let us be very quiet and keep very still, just for a moment. Let us be so quiet we can hear our own breathing and feel the movement of our chests with each new breath. Let us listen carefully to the sound of our own thoughts. And let us put them aside just for a few moments. Let us feel deeply the emotions of our hearts. And then let us put them aside also just for a few moments. Now we are still. Now we are quiet. Now we are less distracted. Now we open ourselves to the touch of God. Holy One, beyond our seeing, beyond our reaching, we seek you now. Generous God, who supplies all we need and so much more, We thank you now. Gracious God, who forgives all our failings and makes us new, we confess to you now. We pause just a moment longer, straining to hear your voice in our hearts or in our minds. We rest secure in your love, like contented children held in a parent's embrace. And now, reaffirmed, we offer ourselves afresh to your service. In Christ's name, amen. The first reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 to 7, and you can find it at page 706 in the Pew Bible. Israel, the Lord who created you says, Do not be afraid, I will save you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through deep waters, 
I will be with you. Your troubles will not overwhelm you. When you pass through fire, you will not be burnt. The hard trials that will come will not hurt you, for I am your God, the holy God of Israel, who saves you. I will give up Egypt to set you free. I will give up Ethiopia and Seba. I will give up whole nations to save your life, because you are precious to me, and because I love you and give you honour. Do not be afraid, I am with you. From the distant east and the farthest west, I will bring your people home. I will tell the north to let them go, and the south not to hold them back. Let my people return from distant lands, from every part of the world. They are my people, and I created them to bring me glory. The second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20, and it's page 44. The eleven disciples went to the hill in Galilee, where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, even though some of them doubted. Jesus drew near and said to them, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Go then to all people everywhere and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. Amen. So we continue our journey through the Easter season and our exploration of how the four canonical Gospels wrap up their accounts of the life and work of Jesus. I think it's fair to say the last two weeks have been the most complicated and perhaps slightly problematic with the endings of John and Mark. So you'll be relieved to know that the ending of Matthew is much more straightforward. But again, as with the last two, we ask ourselves these three questions. Why did the writer choose to end the story in the way they did? What difference would it make if this was the only gospel we had, as would have been the case for most first century and second century Christians? And what difference does this particular ending, this emphasis, have for our lives of faith and discipleship? As we begin our pondering, it's useful to remind ourselves that it's generally accepted that Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and that it was almost certainly written for a group of Jews who had come to faith in Christ. And they needed to be helped to make a transition in their thinking that would allow them to be part of a new movement that not only accepted but advocated what we would see as multiracial international mission. The enormity of such a shift in understanding isn't something we should underestimate. And it's perhaps helpful to keep that at the back of our minds as we explore what the gospel says. But before we do so, 
it's quite useful as well, just very briefly, to remind ourselves what's already been described in the last chapter of this gospel. As I said, each of the four gospels has some differences from the others. Like Mark, Matthew has women going to the tomb and receiving a message to go back and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. But his report, his account, is is quite different in some important ways. Firstly, if you remember last week, Mark had the women running away, saying nothing, because they were terrified. Matthew has them delivering the message. But on their way back to see the disciples, they meet Jesus. And as he greets them, they fall prostrate at his feet and worship him. Rather than Mark's young man or even Matthew's angel, it is the risen Jesus who says to the women, tell my followers to go to Galilee and I will meet them there. Probably worth thinking just and keeping in our mind that the women, when they meet Jesus, they fall flat on the ground and worship him. The second important feature in Matthew, over and above all the other Gospels, is he's the only one who talks about the guard at the tomb and the plot to cover up what happened. The Jewish authorities were quite well aware of Jesus' claims that he would return from the dead, and they've done their utmost to make sure that that cannot happen, that nobody can claim this has occurred. It's a strange story. They go to Pilate and ask him to post a guard at the tomb, which they do. And yet what then happens when events take the turn they do, the authorities then bribe the soldiers to say, oh, actually, we fell asleep and we guessed that whilst we were asleep, his friends came and took the body away. If it does nothing else... This material, which is exclusive to Matthew, gives us an idea of the context in which his readers lived. This explanation of the guards was being circulated widely. This was the way people were telling it. Well, of course, you know, he was executed, we put a guard, and while the guards fell asleep, his friends came and stole the body. For them, believing the gospel, believing that what Matthew told them was true, was no light undertaking. These were Jewish people, most likely, who lived in a context where this was the received wisdom, and they dared to believe otherwise. So we keep that in mind as we move on to focus on the passage we've heard. Matthew 28 begins just outside Jerusalem on what we call Easter Sunday. After the story about bribing the gods we jump straight to Galilee. Matthew has no interest in the events in or around Jerusalem in the next little time. There is silence. And the 11 disciples travel the long, dusty road north to Galilee. We don't know how long that would have taken, but we can be sure it would take several days. And we don't know what they discussed or where they stayed as they travelled along the way. 
you can be fairly sure that they were frightened and bewildered and really had no way of knowing what might await them when they got there. But eventually they arrive at the designated hill and they climb up it. And there is Jesus waiting for him. And the moment they see him and clearly recognize him, they fall prostrate before him. Just as those women had done earlier. This act of prostration, of worship, honored Jesus as nothing else could. The only people before whom you would prostrate yourself would be rulers or God. And the gospel tells us they worshipped him, but some doubted. I had some fun playing with the Greek this week, but I've been told that that's a correct way of rendering it. They worshipped him, but some of them doubted. You could translate the Greek, you, they worshipped him, but they doubted, but apparently that's not a very good translation. But anyway, have you ever been in a situation like that one? It seems that everybody else is getting something and they're doing this stuff, this worshipy stuff or whatever it was. And you don't quite get it, but you've gone with the flow because you don't want to be the odd one out. Have you ever done that? Because I have a suspicion that that's what was going on for some of those disciples And I actually suspect, if we're honest, sometimes that happens for all of us. Sometimes our heart says one thing and our head says another. Sometimes we're caught up in the moment, but we can't make sense of it. And sometimes we're just too scared to say how we really feel. I think one of the risks when we read that phrase, some of them doubted, is we put the stress on the them because we wouldn't doubt would we oh no not us oh well well not much anyway i think it's a shame that sometimes we think that faith and doubt cannot coexist that worship and confusion cannot coexist that understanding and non-understanding cannot be there at the same time but that is exactly what we see here in this story. They worship, but they don't really get it yet. And not one of these disciples is perfect. They come up that hill to see Jesus as he truly is, as they truly are. The denier, the questioner, the power seeker, the one who was a political activist. Just as they come, ah, they come up that hill, fall before Jesus, and not one of them is told off. To not one of them does Jesus say, now come on a minute, up, up you, what about? He just accepts them as they are. This is a very different encounter from those they've had before with Jesus. Sometimes I find myself wondering if it was some of them doubted 
out of 11. Well, how many then is some? Is that two? Or five? Or ten? And who was it? Was it Thomas? Or was it Peter? Or was it James and John? You see, it doesn't matter who or why or what. Because in those disciples, we actually see a reflection of ourselves. As people who come to worship as we really are, with our own questions, our own certainties, our own doubts, our own hopes, our own fears, our own longings. I wonder what went through the disciples' minds as they got up off their knees. Hopefully their knees were a bit less creaky than mine. I wonder if Peter, James and John recalled that time that they had been up a hill with Jesus and experienced that mysterious thing called the transfiguration. Or were they actually so aware of their own shortcomings and their own foolishness and the things they wished they'd never said and the things they wished they'd never done. I wonder. I wonder what goes through our minds as we hear what, for most of us anyway, are familiar words at the end of the gospel. Let's just remind ourselves again, this was almost certainly a Jewish group of believers steeped in Jewish traditions and have been presented in this gospel with a Jesus who came not to overturn the law but to complete the law. They were people for whom the idea that God's covenant now extended beyond their race was new and bewildering and probably shocking And they were people living with an active fear of persecution, arrest, execution. The final paragraph is the author's summary of his gospel. This is the point to which everything he has written leads. And it's really quite stunning if you look at it that way. In this very brief speech, Jesus uses the word all four times. And each time, it's really important. And he's saying it to these bewildered blokes who are standing in front of him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. This is a clear statement of his divine claim. Only God has authority over all things in all places at all times. Before his death, Jesus was restricted to a particular place and a particular time and could and was understood as one more prophet, albeit a particularly good one. But now, he says, there is no more ambiguity. God is encountered in the resurrected Jesus. The authority of Christ is universal. Yes, of course, there may be evil, sin or suffering. But the reality is there is no place that is ungodly that we can 
claim for Jesus. There is no place where God is not already active because in Christ he has full and total authority everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if we were actually able to line ourselves up in our living with that belief? Secondly, go to all nations or all people, make disciples of them and baptize them into the threefold name. It struck me for the first time, I have to confess this week, that Matthew is the only one of the Gospels that has such a clear statement of a need for Christian baptism. Whilst it's quite clear from Acts and the various epistles that the church does practice such a rite from the early days, the other three Gospels don't have such a command. So why does Matthew? I think this connects again with the fact that he had Jewish readers. And there was such a thing as Jewish proselyte baptism. If somebody wanted to become a Jew, they could be baptised into that. And also within that first century context, baptism into the name of a person or a divinity was a way of saying, that's what I sign up to you. I think this is consistent with his completion motif, that Christian baptism is part of a new order that shockingly extends to all people of all races in all places. Given that Jesus has authority in all places, that everywhere is in some sense part of the messianic kingdom, it is up to his followers to spread the good news throughout it, beyond any traditional boundaries of ethnicity or nationhood. The old dividing line between Jew and Gentile has gone. The fear of contamination or dilution must give way to a new understanding of a gospel for all. So go to all places and tell all people. And tell them all the things I have commanded you, or everything in most English translations. So what is it that Jesus commanded his followers that they are to tell all the people in all the nations throughout the whole world where Jesus has authority. The writer of Matthew's Gospel clearly thought he knew what those things were because he collected the stories and ordered them as he did. So is it what we would call the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes and some reflections on aspects of the Decalogue Or is it some of the key parables about the kingdom of God? Is it the ancient words of the Shema? To love God with all your mind, all your heart, all your soul and all your strength. Another set of four alls. Is it to love your neighbour as you love yourself? What do you think it means? What are all the things that Jesus has commanded us to go and tell other people. One of the key things that Baptists love to say 
and sets us apart from some other Christians is that our supreme authority is Jesus, not the book that talks about him, precisely in the way that Matthew says. It also talks about baptism. It also talks about evangelism. I have a suspicion the Baptist Declaration of Principle is based on the end of Matthew's Gospel, if I'm totally honest. I haven't checked, but that's my suspicion. When we talk about fulfilling Christ's commission, we need to remind ourselves what he commanded and what he did not. We all know that that Matthew's Gospel says quite clearly, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The whole law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets depend on these two commandments. That's Matthew quoting Jesus. The whole law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets depend on those two statements. So we all know it, but of course, the challenge is to live it, to share it, to think about how we understand it. It's a tall order. We have bewildered, frightened, doubting disciples on the top of a hill outside Galilee, being told to go to all places to tell all people of all races all the things that Jesus has taught and commanded them and to baptise them into that faith. And then Jesus has one more thing to say. I am with you all the time. For his disciples, this was literally what we would term a mountaintop experience. For early readers of the gospel, the idea of going up to a mountain or a hilltop would be a sign that this was talking about a supernatural event. This was something about God. Theologically, if, as he asserts, Jesus is divine, if he is the Christ, he has authority everywhere. But what he promises here is subtly different. And not simply, everywhere is under my jurisdiction. But actually, everywhere you go from now on, I will be with you. Wherever you go, I will be with you. The words of Isaiah that we have sung and that we have heard. These had a resonance with the disciples and the early Jewish believers. They would have heard that and made the connection. The man Jesus may be about to leave them, but the Christ of God will never abandon them. Wherever they go, Jesus already has authority. Wherever they go, whatever happens, Christ is there with them. And that's where Matthew stops. That's three out of four Gospels and no Ascension story. We're just left in this one with 12 men at the top 
of a hill. But they must have come back down again. And so too was, must we. We have to go back to our own reality. As this sermon and as this service draw to a close, some people here will firmly believe that everything I've said is true. Some of them will believe some of it, and some will doubt most of it. The mystery and wonder of divine grace is it actually doesn't matter if our faith is strong or weak. It doesn't matter if our head says one thing and our heart says another, because that promise goes beyond any of that. God is beyond our understanding, our confining, our explaining. This promise holds that wherever we are, whatever happens, Christ is there with us. And so, a closing question, a familiar one by now, the so what? If all we had was Matthew's gospel, if all we had to go on and take us forward was this final encounter with Jesus, how would that shape our faith, our discipleship, or our mission? Let's bring our prayers for others. Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Living God, we praise you for the way we experience your presence as we come to worship. The way this time enables us to focus our thoughts on you. Ever-present God, help us to find you here. But save us from mistakenly imagining you are more here than anywhere else. Teach us that you are with us wherever we may be and whatever we may be doing. And so help us to consecrate not just this short time week by week, but every moment of every day. Help us to recognise that you are involved in every aspect of our lives in every part of our world and in every situation and grant that this brief drawing aside from the routine of life may equip us to go back to it with new conviction, vision, hope and faith. Ever-present God, help us to find you there. We pray for those facing difficult times, battling with illness, anxious about the future, grieving for loved ones, struggling to make ends meet, desperate to find employment, trying to make sense out of confusion. May the knowledge of your presence Bring reassurance, comfort, guidance and hope 
We pray for those living out their daily lives in violent situations. Whether exposed to improvised explosive devices in Afghanistan, gunfire in Syria and Bahrain and the Middle East, people traffickers in Africa and Asia, or those who face domestic violence in our own country and our own city. May the knowledge of your presence bring inner peace and a way to find help. We pray for those who are lonely, deprived through age or frailty of human companionship, or separated from others even when they are with them through fear, shyness, mistrust or prejudice. May the knowledge of your presence give them strength and the ability to reach out in friendship. We pray particularly for those who are on our hearts today and silently we name them before you. May the knowledge of your presence bring transformation and draw them to you. Ever-present God, we rejoice that you are involved in our world and involved in our lives, not distant or remote, but seeking the good of everything that you have made. Gratefully, we put our trust in you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, go before us, go behind us, walk beside us to protect and guide us. In the future, in the past, with us now, in the challenge of our lives. We go in the company of the risen Christ to live and work to his praise and glory today and always. Mm -hmm.